Today's episode is brought to you by Olive, a next-generation logistics company serving premium fashion brands. Both the cost and frequency of returns continue to rise. And if these trends continue, it's completely unsustainable, not only for your business, but for the planet as well. Olive is here to help. Olive offers brands and retailers over 50% off of return shipping expenses while offering customers sustainable, waste-free packaging and delivery. 50% might sound crazy until you realize how the service works. Olive will pick up your customers' returns in reusable packaging and manage the closed-loop resale experience for your customers. If you're interested in learning more, visit shopolive.com slash watsonweekly. Save money, save the planet. It's February 6, 2023, and this is the Watson Weekly, your essential e-commerce digest. Today on our show, Shopify's major engineering shakeup, Foot Locker sued for its customer chat feature, the Department of Justice lawsuit against Google, what UPS's latest earnings can teach business owners, and finally, the Investor Minute, which contains five items this week from the world of venture capital, acquisitions, and IPOs. But first, in our shopping cart full of news, Shopify's major engineering shakeup. Recent reporting suggests that Shopify's chief technology officer, Alan Leanwin, has left for personal reasons after a little more of a year of service. Do you think he left for personal reasons? Sure, it's possible, but not likely. That also wouldn't explain why two of the first hires Alan made are also departing around the same time. I'm sure Toby personally wanted them all gone. How's that for a personal reason? Just look at Shopify's recent news. New COO Kaz Nyatian and new CFO Jeff Hoffmeister were announced in September 2022. There were reports of many internal meetings being canceled as well as Slack channels being shut down. And now, Shopify has dismissed its CTO and the top lieutenants. What's fueling this? I think in no small part of this is a result of Shopify CEO Tobe Lutka feeling more comfortable in his role today than at this time last year. In June 2022, Tobe was awarded founder shares controlling 40% of the company, which gives him more latitude to make significant changes to the company without fear of a hostile takeover. In addition to Tobe having more control, Shopify is also in a unique situation for its chief technology officer like Alan. Namely, Toby is not only a first-rate technologist, but also the founder of the company, which means in some respects, you are simply implementing Toby's vision rather than charting your own course. Many seasoned CTOs would not want to enter into such a situation. So why did Toby ever hire a CTO at all? It's always fun to speculate without any actual information. And my guess is that in the middle of the pandemic in 2021, Toby was afraid that Shopify could very quickly get to a size where he would not able to be managed in company effectively on his own. Now in early 2023, with the pandemic hypergrowth receding and Shopify innovation wobbling, Toby reasserted control over his primary domain, technology and innovation. What this does is leave the Shopify core team in charge of most things and I anticipate seeing improvements from this approach for their core offerings. However, while this Shopify core team can be trusted to execute the current playbook, it's still unclear if the same core can be trusted to execute on two other massive Shopify initiatives. The first is the Shopify Fulfillment Network. While I'm sure Shopify will release amazing stats as part of its Q4 earnings call, the reality is Shopify is coming from such a small base that they will need meteoric growth for it to be noteworthy. Regardless of your feelings, Fulfillment was an expensive bet for Shopify. 
For listeners who may not be familiar, Shopify acquired Deliver less than a year ago and acquired Six River Systems in 2019. The next move is surprisingly straightforward, but Shopify has not executed on it. It comes back to the original CEO and founder of Deliver, Harish Abbott. Who else could they find to execute the Deliver vision at Shopify better than the founder of Deliver? The big problem right now is that Harish is not the single-threaded leader of this group. Personally, I keep waiting for Harish to take over Fulfillment, but it's been somewhat telling that he took the cash in the acquisition instead of the shares from Shopify, so maybe it's not in the cards. Shopify Components is another big new bet by Shopify, or at least it could be. This bet is aimed at the enterprise software market, which Shopify could have trouble with. Shopify Components is essentially renaming components that Shopify has released in the past few years. But beyond the technology, culture is actually the biggest worry. The DNA of the Shopify organization is fast, multi-tenant SaaS, product-led growth, offers limited support, and talks about disruption a lot. Enterprise software is about security controls, legacy, vendor consolidation, market and sales-led growth, premium support, and risk avoidance. This seems like a huge culture gap, which could be a structural blocker to Shopify's ultimate success at the top end of the market. Much more will need to change to make this successful. Our second story. Foot Locker sued for its customer chat feature. Footwear News recently reported that Foot Locker is the target of a new privacy-related lawsuit related to the company's chat feature. Essentially, the idea is that recording text conversations on chat, archiving them, and sharing them with analytics partners to analyze them and gather insights means that must be involved with illegal wiretapping? As crazy as it sounds, that's what's being alleged. The lawsuit is a class action lawsuit which no one ever wants and could cost Foot Locker up to $25 million if it goes through. This is, of course, happening because of the rise of digital technology and the fact that many privacy and other consumer protection laws were designed for a different era. Some might call this technology useful, others might call it mass surveillance. Sure, you initiated the chat, but what precisely did you consent to when you did that? To keep personal details of your conversation forever? Did you consent to their employees reading it? What about their partners who you have no relationship with? It's more slippery than you want to admit. Witness a quote from the lawsuit. Quote, Visitors would be shocked and appalled to know that defendant secretly records these conversations and would be even more troubled to learn that the defendant allows a third party to eavesdrop on the conversations in real time to harvest data from the chat transcripts under the guise of data analytics, end quote. It sounds scary even to me when you put it that way. Regardless of what happens next, it's helpful for you to know that this is not just an isolated incident against a single retailer. Similar lawsuits were filed against Crocs and Adidas last November which means it's entirely possible more could be coming. In the end, I'm sure it will be appealed and settled, but if the lawyers succeed, won't that just embolden them? As you might expect, if you're a brand or retailer, it wouldn't be a terrible idea to mention this to your lawyer and double-check your chat function reminds shoppers that their conversations could be logged and archived according to your privacy policy. I went to Foot Locker's website and found that its chat had been updated with just such a privacy message when you begin a chat with their support team. Our third story. Could the Department of Justice lawsuit against Google benefit Amazon? This segment comes from my friend and Watsonian, Adam Crawshaw, who asked me an interesting question last week. What impact does the latest Department of Justice Google lawsuit have on Amazon? The shorter answer is not much, but we should go over it. First, the DOJ is suing Google for, quote, monopolizing digital advertising, 
Despite the fact that Google bought one of the best ad servers in the world in DoubleClick, Google still has only a 27% share of advertising revenue, which has been slowly declining primarily due to Amazon share gains. This means that instead of suing Google for the share of advertising, the DOJ might have been better served looking at the share of search instead where Google has a 90% share. At the heart of the suit is monopoly technology raising ad rates and causing harm to small businesses. However, based on all the brands I speak with, if you wanted to pinpoint a single event raising ad rates, it wouldn't be Google. Ad rates most definitely went up for many brands due to Apple's privacy stance and how it affected advertisers like Meta. This makes me think that the DOJ believes that it needs to prove consumer and business harm and that a strict monopoly definition is not enough. Otherwise, why would you attack such a narrow market rather than one Google has a greater monopoly? Ironically, this is one of those questions that kind of answers itself. What consumer is complaining about how free and amazing Google search is? Not many. Moreover, there are other factors to consider here. Google and others are losing share to Amazon, which has doubled its share of advertising revenue by going from a 7% share of ad revenue in 2019 to an expected 13% in 2022. And it appears to me that if you're going to measure the impact of the market, then revenue would be the appropriate metric here. Which is another way of saying that it's Amazon that is growing faster than everyone else. Facts also tell us that advertising costs per click, what the industry calls CPCs on Amazon, are steadily rising, not Google's. This is an added bonus to Amazon. Where could this go? Ultimately, Amazon seems very focused on hurting a wounded Google and is no doubt thrilled by this lawsuit as long as it manages to stay out of the fight. The pace of innovation in Amazon's advertising data and tools released in the past few years seems to keep increasing with AMS and Amazon Marketing Cloud focused on the big agency ad budgets. A lawsuit like this might not distract Google fully, but if it's going to help anyone in the industry, it could be Amazon. And our last story. What UPS's latest earnings report can teach business owners? If UPS's earnings call is any indication, it's going to be a wild 2023. CEO Carol Tomei started off the UPS Q4 2022 earnings call saying that 2023 was going to be the year of resilience. I took this to mean, hang on tight, we don't know what to expect. Strap in, Watsonians. There's a lot to think about here. Let's first jump into Q4 parcel volume as this information has implications beyond just UPS earnings. Overall, Q4 2022 declined more than expected, but the quarter played out like this. September and October hit UPS volume expectations. Early November was lighter than expected, but there was a surge in Cyber Week volume. After Cyber Week, volume completely fell off a cliff and missed the company's expectations. Overall, business-to-consumer average daily parcel volume declined 3% year-over-year, while business-to-business average daily parcel volume declined 5% year-over-year. UPS reported that consumers returned to pre-pandemic shopping behaviors and holiday retail sales were lower than expected. For UPS Q4 2022 earnings, revenue was down for the company 2.7% year-over-year and overall operating profit declined 3.4%. Overall, average daily volume declined 3.8% year-over-year for the quarter About half of this is due to Amazon's volume declines. Despite the decline in volume, margins improved due to revenue quality and efficiency gains. It's worth noting that the small and medium business category is now 26.5% of U.S. daily volume, which is up 70 basis points from last year. UPS's international business in Q4 looked worse as exports from Asia declined 10%, leading to an 8.3% decline in international revenue. For UPS 2022 full-year earnings, Revenue came in at $103 billion, rising 3.1% over 2021 
but missed its forecast by 2%, primarily due to a stronger U.S. dollar. Operating profit came in at 5.4% higher year-over-year, and U.S. operating margin expanded to 12.8%, which is the company's best performance in 10 years. It's the 2023 outlook that has me cautious. Overall, the company has two scenarios it's using to forecast. One is the base case, and the other is more conservative. The base case forecast includes a mild recession in the first half of the year with a moderate recovery in the second half. Average daily volume is expected to be flat overall with some puts and takes. There are negotiated volume Amazon losses, which the company plans to offset with small and medium business growth. The conservative forecast is a little more pessimistic. UPS is expecting mid-single-digit declines in average daily volume and weaker demand in Asia in the first half of the year and a slower European recovery than expected in the second half of the year. The major initiatives for UPS in 2023 are the continued rollout of its Smart Package Smart Facility Initiative, expansion of its Digital Access Program, or DAP, for small businesses into Europe, as well as a 2.3 million square foot expansion of warehouse space specifically for healthcare logistics, which I thought was very interesting as this is one of the company's most profitable and high growth segments. Essentially, the company is leaning more heavily into its big successes and cutting back on other projects. Ironically, this is great advice for any business in 2023. To close this segment, I wanted to highlight something interesting I learned from UPS CEO Carol Tomei during the call. The company is using the S&P Global 2023 projections as its core projection for the year. Based on this information, I pulled up a few highlights from the report for all the Watsonians out there with the hope that we can all get smarter about 2023 together. Understanding what is built into these baseline assumptions is critical for business owners because any downside surprise to these assumptions could affect investors, the credit market, and consumer demand negatively. First, the S&P Global 2023 forecast is based on no escalation in the war in Ukraine and a negotiated peace in the summer timeframe. Obviously, no one knows what's going to happen here, but to me, this means that literally any conflict escalation is not built into market expectations. Second, the forecast predicts that while inflation will not rise as much as last year, consumer demand will pull back. Third, the forecast predicts that it could take several years for inflation to reach the central bank's targets, and no Federal Reserve rate cuts are planned in 2023. The U.S. dollar is expected to retreat slightly from its current levels, but not to a great degree. Finally, labor shortages will continue to affect the economy, but it's predicted that hiring freezes will be more common in 2023 than layoffs, due to the scarcity of labor. The forecast predicts job losses to be concentrated in real estate and finance. To me, all this just reinforces a plan for the worst, hope for the best type of outlook. And the worst thing that could happen this year from a financial perspective would be triggered by an escalation in the war in Ukraine and its ripple effect on the global economy. Something like this could reignite inflation and further dampen consumer confidence. Hey, Watsonians, this is Rick. If you're looking to discuss e-commerce topics with other listeners, you can find it all at the RMW Commerce community. There, you'll find a trusted group of listeners just like you who are passionate learners of e-commerce. So don't delay. Just visit community.rmwcommerce.com to sign up for free. It's that time, friends, for our Investor Minute. We have five items on the menu today. First, eBay invested in UK luxury resale platform Kudoni. Kudoni is a marketplace that allows buyers and sellers to trade designer fashion. The company has raised about 7.5 million pounds in this fundraising. Second, 
Digital agencies Blue Wheel and Retail Bloom merged to form a larger agency. In the past, Blue Wheel has focused on digital e-commerce and Retail Bloom has focused on being an agency for Amazon sellers. The combination of these two agencies is one indication that Amazon is a difficult channel for any brand to ignore. Third, cosmetics brand Makeup by Mario raised a $40 million growth round. Mario is a celebrity makeup artist who is going to use the investment to expand to additional retailers like Sephora, as well as invest in a direct-to-consumer website. Fourth, digital freight marketplace Fredos made a public debut via special purpose acquisition company. The usage of SPACs has majorly declined in the past six months as they have not returned much to retail investors, and the performance of these companies has not been good. Freightos hopes to break this trend by making it easier for shippers to compare and book services from freight forwarders and importers. However, to this point about SPACs, the company's stock opened at $7 and has since dropped to $0.50 a share already. And finally, Ariana Grande will buy back her beauty brand for $15 million. The pop singer is buying back her REM brand from former brands, which she previously sold the brand to because former brands recently entered bankruptcy. All I can say is, thank you. Next. That's all for this week. Till next time, Watsonians. Hi, I'm Rick Watson, CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting and host of the Watson Weekly Podcast, your essential e-commerce digest. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. The show is produced by Jose Baez, production manager, Gabriela Matsuki. To hear new episodes of the show every Monday morning, subscribe now at rmwcommerce.com slash Watson Weekly and wherever you get your podcasts.